Hello and welcome to the EG Property Podcast. This is one of a collection of podcasts recorded live at EG's ESG Summit that took place recently. This recording is of a panel session delivered in partnership with Montague Evans that seeks to answer, has carbon killed development? Chaired by EG's Head of Content, Emily Wright, and speakers from the public and private sector, Listen in as the panel delve into whether we need to build any new buildings, should we be building new buildings, or are we headed to a future where retrofit and refurb is the only option? So this is the panel discussion, you know, it's the one that promoted the title for for today, Has Carbon Killed Development? So we're going to be talking about whether we need to build new buildings, should we, are we headed to a future where retrofit and refurb is the only option? Should we be? Lots of questions in this panel. And the impact it's going to have on real estate business and the planet. And yeah, I mean, we've got an absolutely fantastic panel here today. So we've got joining us today, um, Nakatorius D. Garner, Senior Manager, Commercial Real Estate Lead, Carbon Trust. Alexia Laird, NZCBS Task Group and Embodied Carbon and Sustainability Director for Landsec. And Rao, Interim Principal Policy and Programs Officer, Environment, Greater London Authority. Simon Rogers, partner Montague Evans, and last but by no, no means least, uh, Steve Sanam, founder of Common Projects. So thank you all very much for joining me here today. Um, so it makes sense, I think, to start off this panel by looking into that question, looking into the question that we have based today on, looking into that thorny issue. And so I'd like to just sort of run down the panel, if that's okay, and just very quickly ask each person briefly to say why they think that question has carbon killed development why is that so relevant as a discussion point so that'd be great if we could um start with you please um Nectarius. yeah so we have a lot of things going on uh we, we've heard about uh, regulations we have uh, international uh, eu based sfdr we have here the uh, SDR, the net zero targets for 2050, no matter in which country you, uh, you're sitting in, the EU taxonomy, and uh, you also have a lot of, uh, of demand coming from, uh, from tenants, whether that would be residential or commercial for high quality uh, buildings. So the question is, how are you going to, to deliver those buildings? Are you going to, to retrofit? Are you going to have a, a new development? And uh, actually, with that uh, limitations on, uh, on carbon emissions, from both from the operational and the embodied carbon, that is why it's super relevant. What do you need to choose eventually? What is most uh, effective in order to, to meet all these uh, uh, targets we have? Thank you very much. And Alexia? Um, I love it when a panel question makes me a bit nervous because I think it leads to quite good conversations. Um, I think this is a question that genuinely anyone who is in the general business of looking at some kind of development is asking themselves I think you know at any point when you're entering into some kind of a planning discussion the first thing you know we're now in a situation where you're on the back foot if you start talking about demolition which I think is a great thing the way that you know the paradigm has shifted we have completely refocused the narrative to look at why actually demolition or retention should be the starting point and the onus or the responsibility of the developers to prove why that's not viable. Mm. And I think that's such a fundamental shift that's happened so quickly, it's really encouraging. But I think we now need to understand what that actually means. So I completely love the binary kind of aspect of the question. I think the reality is, I'm sure we'll tease out, it's so gray and there's such a spectrum and such a scope kind of in between that, that this type of conversation is really important to have to be able to start to kind of untangle that. 
Absolutely. It is a bit mean of me to ask um, you to give an answer on a very nuanced question before we even start the panel, but I'm going to continue to do that anyway. So, um, Aaron, sorry. <laughs> no worries. Um, so, in London, we're, we're kind of in the business of setting very ambitious policies, and we've always had targets far beyond what's required at a national level. That's typically concentrated on in operational emissions, um, but in the last few years, we've had our whole life cycle carbon policy, which is targeting embodied emissions, obviously. So, we're trying to shift the norms around development, as, as we mentioned, um, for yeah, to prioritise retention, but obviously we still want to see development in London and that's a key focus. So yeah, I really want to understand what the barriers are and, and the nuance again around that to, to make sure that we're not sort of stifling uh, development at all in the city and, and understanding how best to kind of target our policies so that we are being ambitious um, to reduce emissions that we all know we need to do, but also making sure that's achievable and realistic. Thank you very much. And Simon? Um, yeah, I th I th the reason I think it's an important topic. Um, carbon, I think, has undoubtedly made development better. Um, having more knowledge about what we do and the outcomes of that, um, having more skills and techniques to affect that has to be better, but it has undoubtedly made it harder as well. And I think we heard earlier that in current economic conditions, um, being challenged to adopt retrofit um, first or having more cost or obstacles placed in the way of new build development can, can feel daunting. Um, but it's not a challenge we should avoid. I think what we need to help us meet that challenge is clarity. I think what, as an industry, all sides need is a clear and trusted mechanism to help assess options so that we get better outcomes from developments across the board. Okay, and Steve. Thank you. Um, it's quite a dramatic question, isn't it? Um, I think it's not killed development for us. We're still cracking on. Um, I think um, the carbon agenda um, and the increased focus on embodied carbon uh, is making the industry um, have to think harder, which is um, not a bad thing. Um, moving the uh, embodied carbon of our um, well, existing buildings and proposed buildings um, up the list of importance when we're making decisions at every single stage of the development process, and the development is a series of decision points, um, is, is an important and, and useful thing for us to be doing at the moment. I think um, uh, the development industry is, as we've already heard, is a little behind a lot of other industries. Um, in this country, definitely. Um, and we've, as, as individuals, we, we spend a lot of time um, thinking about how we can, I don't know, recycle and, um, and use refills in our washing up liquid bottles and things like that. These are decisions that are easy to make um, and, uh, and have moved up a list of importance for us as, a, as individuals um, in our everyday lives. Um, and I think development can, can just move, move important decisions about the future of um, this planet further up um, the importance of, uh, uh, of uh, a list when they're making decisions. So um, I don't think it's killed development. I think we're just making um, better and more informed decisions. Thank you very much. Um, and just a reminder that if anybody wants to ask questions via Slido, they can with um, the code 303-7742 or hashtag 303-7742. Um, so any questions that you want to put through, then please do. There'll be time for questions at the end as well. Um, Thank you very much to you all for that. That's, that's excellent. And I think we're going to sort of delve into to a bit of that. And Alexia, as you quite rightly pointed out, you know, that, that was a, 
that was a question that I asked everybody, which required a response that, you know, I think it's useful for the audience to hear. But now let's delve into it because it's it's not it's not binary. There are lots of different nuances to take into consideration. As you so expertly made the point, okay. <laughs> would you mind if I came back to you on that, please? Because that is really important. That you know, and I think hearing just from just from hearing the different views along the panel that there are very different sort of. Uh, takes on the same same issue and it's just really important to recognize that while yeah it's great to be able to answer it one way or the other there mm. are these nuances so how do we explore those nuances and how do we communicate them as well to a wider audience yeah i mean so i work for a developer um landsec you know we're a big uh, asset owner and developer in the uk and i think it's it's something that's kind of shifting the way that we that we look at developments i think you know there's occasions where it's going to be an easy win an easy answer you know when you inherit or when you've got a building that has really strong bones and that is you know an industrial age kind of building it's a it's a no question no brainer that's the easy one i think it's when we start to get into those kind of awkward buildings where you're starting to talk about the compromise to the quality of the space where your you know floor to ceiling height isn't quite as good as you would like it to be or when the flexibility just what isn't there that's when you start to really have to make those value judgments about you know where is carbon going to sit in that decision making and i think i mean to your point it absolutely has risen on the agenda you know you've got you've got cost you've got carbon and you've got kind of product um, and it's kind of where you know we're kind of starting to see it as this kind of venn diagram where we look at cost we look at customer and we look at carbon and if a decision kind of meets two of those then we try and shift it to the middle but it becomes kind of a lens to look at decisions through to say if you're in the middle you meet all three no-brainer. If you're meeting two but not three, then maybe you should start and try and find solutions to move into that central kind of middle Goldilocks zone. And if you're only at one, then you should really be reconsidering. Mm. And that's kind of the way that we're starting to think about it. Um, and, and it really has shifted the way that we are making decisions, both from a development point of view, but also from a potential investment and acquisition point of view as well. And that's something that we've been, they were talking about and mentioned at the beginning, and I think will be a thread throughout, is that, that you said it's changing the way you think about development and changing the decisions, and that's just so important. And actually, um, Steve, can I come back to you on that as well? Um, those points around changing the way that we're thinking. I know that you sort of put it in those terms, which is really helpful, you know, that what we're doing personally, individually, and what, you know, why, why then can't there be more of a, you know, approach like that from industry? What sort of barriers do you think we are we're experiencing still. So. Um, well, there's barriers everywhere, but, um, but as, a, as a business, we set ourselves up in order to try and develop, de de develop um, uh, projects in a, um, a more connected, more sort of carbon aware, more planet aware um, way. We've, we've, we've come from, well, we're a relatively new business. We've come from all of us from backgrounds um, in delivering many thousands of homes through um, uh, some of which we're proud of, some of which we're less proud of, you know, and and there are there are reasons why some of those projects um, weren't as good as they could have been, um, because they were sort of more acceptable and more um, normal. And um, demolishing buildings and replacing them with great big towers was the was the done thing. And and now we have the opportunity to create. Um, well, we have the opportunity to create a development uh, company, which is wonderful. But uh, I think the development industry has the opportunity to create. Um, uh, developments that are, that are built with more heart and soul. And in terms of the barriers, I, I think it's just the barriers to thinking. You know, just, let, let's, let's just think harder. Let's think of the solutions. Let's work out what the barriers are. Let's smash through them. Keep on hitting them. Keep on hitting them until, we, um, until we're able to deliver the developments that we're proud of. 
Um, that's what we've decided to do. You know, we set up a business specifically to do it, um, which is a difficult way of doing it, but it's what we're going to do. Um, and we're delivering uh, developments that are um, re repurposing existing buildings, but we're also developing new schemes. You know, we've got a massive scheme in Wandsworth Town Centre, 650 homes on a former utilities um, site right in the centre of Wandsworth. That is the site to deliver new build on, and that is the site to deliver ultra-low carbon new build because it's near all the existing infrastructure, um, and we need to intensify the use of that site in order to make sure it's an ultra-low carbon scheme. Um, but, uh, but, but, yeah, our other scheme in Croydon is the re reworking of an existing office building that, was, that starred in Peep Show, the Channel 4 series, <laughs> if, if, if you're fans. What, the uh, opening credits? Or just, or no, the, no, they, they, the the Mark and Jeremy lived in flat five in, uh, in, the, in the building that sits on top of it, so, um, so it's great. Um, but, but using buildings that are, um, that are well, uh, locked away a load of carbon that have c contributed to the carbon crisis that we're in today um, and, uh, and that we don't want to release that carbon back in the start again. I haven't answered your question. I've just waffled about stuff. But. No, it's really. I love the peep show fact. <laughs> I used to live in the the block of apartments that, you, that was used in train spotting yeah. to show. Right? Yeah, yeah. No, it wasn't great. It was caught the sight of it. Was like, oh no, that wasn't that wasn't a good time. But anyway, move, moving on. So I think. Um, Picking up on what, what's been said there, I think we're gonna, I'm going to come to Aaron next because we're talking a, a bit around like London projects at the moment and then it'd be really good to go to Simon because you made a great point earlier about needing a clear um, uh, mechanism and then we're going to come um, to you as well, Nectaria, to talk about some of the stuff that you're focusing on from the real sustainability expert perspective. Um, so, Aaron, we've been talking around these issues and a couple of London projects mentioned as well. Um, so, from your perspective, you know, how are you seeing... From, from, I suppose, a much broader perspective, everything being actioned, or hopefully things being actioned, that takes it from beyond talking and, and shows that the development world is changing, and then how are you guys responding to that? Yeah, I think, um, so as I mentioned initially, we, we, we do have very strict policies on um, sorry, operational emissions, and typically that's been really well responded to. We'll have a report out later this week, which will show the planning applications from last year go far beyond the, sort of, the minimum requirements that we've set. Um, which is why we decided to set policy on whole life carbon um, because we sort of knew that was kind of where industry needed to be starting to take further, further action. But it has been a real challenge. I think um, we do get a lot of contact about asking how the policy is going and assuming that we just have this amazing treasure trove of incredible data, which, um, yes, we have data, but the quality we get the, the, the assess of the assessments and how they're carried out does really vary. Um, but I think that's fine. I think that's, it's, this, it's about setting policy and seeing how industry reacts and changing if we need to. Um, we know that you know, we don't have much time and so action needs to be taken. So that's very much the, the approach that we have taken, um, trying to understand where the issues are, trying to learn as we go. Um, so it's been a real mix. You know, I, we do get emails from, or I get emails from saying, people saying that the policy doesn't go far enough. So we just have benchmarks. We don't have targets, so benchmarks that are just reported against. Then we have other people that are saying, you know, this is too much, that's too many requirements, you know, this is, there's too much work. Um, so, you know, how do you navigate that field? Um, ultimately, we will keep pushing ahead and, and take on board all the views that we hear. Um, we're currently starting the process for developing the next iteration of the London plan. So that will involve consultation with stakeholders um, as well as the public and, and everyone who's involved. And so, again, we'll take on all that information and try and understand what the, the best approach is um, regarding the next policy. But it's... Yeah, it's a real mix, and um, but I think, as has been mentioned, the, the fact that we are having this conversation, the fact that there is a real understanding that we need to retain more 
from a starting point is really great. It was only a few years ago, I think, that that wouldn't have been the case. Um, and that's incredible, really. So um, we just need to build on that momentum and, and show that, yeah, as we mentioned, that we just need to rethink how we do development and just work harder. That's what we want to see. Um, it's difficult because, obviously, when you set policy, you, you don't want to make things unviable. You don't want to make things that are set agendas that are too challenging to meet. But at the same time, we know where we need to be. So it's, that's kind of what we're trying to navigate. Um, and hopefully, we're, we'll, we'll keep pushing ahead and, and get somewhere together with industry. Thank you very much. And in a minute, I'm going to move on to talking about the retrofit and, and refurb side of things. But just before I do that, um, Simon, you were saying that we, we, the industry really needs a, a, clear, um, a clear mechanism. And um, yeah. I'm interested to hear how you think that needs to manifest. And have we got any evidence of something which is, goes partially towards offering that? Um, yeah, I, I think agreeing with other panellists here and... Um, Steve's points about um, we need to think harder, we need to just, it's pushed up the agenda, as Alexia says, we need to think harder about it and push through these barriers through, through, through effort, through striving to be better. I think that's all absolutely right. I think where I suppose I just would bring that back to the framework with which we, within which we're doing that thinking, um, and one of those barriers, perhaps biggest amongst them or certainly in that, is, is the planning framework we operate within and I think however hard we push and however much people are willing to invest and want to invest time and thought into how we can do this better it's very difficult to do that if there's not a clarity in terms of how that should then be assessed and, and what should um, what should drive decisions and 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 what what weighting, what part does carbon play in that? And Aaron and his team are helping us get there, but it, it's something that is a national uh, issue. And I think we were, I mean, in terms of examples, uh, what goes partially there, I suppose I, I, I'll give the reverse in some ways. Um, you know, everybody understandably following the Marks and Spencer's Oxford Street case with great interest. Mm -hmm. And I think whatever side people come down on that, what everybody hoped or what most people hoped for was a degree of clarity out of that. And I think the disappointment was that it, that was the one thing we didn't get from it, is it, it went out of its way to, to, um, to avoid setting a precedent and, and, and provide that clarity. I think if, that, if, if a clear mechanism, a clear framework is provided in terms of how decisions making and accepting the difficulties with that in terms of knowledge and data and where we are, you'll find that there is the energy and the investment and the appetite to put their shoulder behind it. But at the moment, I think people are just not quite sure what they're putting their weight behind. And it's, it's causing delay and paralysis mm. in progress. Thank you, thank you very much. Um, Nectarius, I wanted to ask you, your, what are your thoughts on Steve's comment that there's a barrier to thinking? Because that's an interesting one that it stuck with me. Do you agree with that? That could be, I think, a result of uh, lacking on uh, limitations coming from uh, regulatory uh, mm -hmm. requirements, similar to, let's say, the, the APC, as an example, okay. and uh, the operational carbon. Uh, and that, well, you don't have a limitation. Essentially, you can do whatever you want, and that doesn't push the boundary in terms of, uh, of thinking and, uh, and design. So definitely, there is lack on, uh, on that point. But I think it comes from uh, the lack of uh, the limitations we have on, uh, on the regulatory uh, requirements. Okay. Thank you very much. And one of the questions that we wanted to really explore in this panel as well was looking at um, this idea that retrofit and refurb 
as being the only option in the future. Um, and not saying that that is how it should be, but asking the questions around that, saying, A, is that desirable? And B, is that realistic? And then a broader question on well, what would the impact of that look like? So staying with you on that, if that's okay, could, could you give me a bit of an overview in terms of, do you think there's an argument for just going down the retrofit refurb route in the future? Uh, just no. So if we think about some, uh, some numbers, uh, it's suggested that by 2050, 80% of the buildings will be existing, 20% uh, will be uh, new. Uh, so there's definitely room for both uh, redevelopment or retrofit and also uh, new developments. The thing is, why do we need to make new developments? And uh, that comes, uh, I think uh, you had mentioned in a previous discussion, uh, Alexia, on uh, the mandate. If you have, uh, if you're a private uh, equity uh, home office, or if you are an asset manager, uh, an investor, and you have uh, to to meet the uh, the fiduciary, you have to meet your fiduciary uh, duty duty, and also when you are an asset manager uh, as well, or even a listed company, you have uh, a specific mandate, and you need to uh, meet this mandate to to the investor. So, as an example, we have uh, with Carpenters, we have a joint venture investing in uh, in real estate, and in particular offices. And we had a very clear mandate that we are going to do only uh, redevelopment. So if that's what you're saying to your investors, that's what you have uh, to do and you need to find ways in order to, to deep retrofit. If your mandate is to do uh, new developments or, or both uh, redevelopment and new developments, you need to meet, uh, to meet that. And you need to find the solutions in order to uh, de uh, deliver uh, both outcomes within the, the limits uh, that you have to, to meet both from uh, operational and, and embodied carbon and uh, the whole ESG. Thank you very much. And um, so you, men you mentioned Alexia there, so let's, that's very useful because you're sitting right next to, to each other and you're nodding as well, which suggests yeah. you might have something to add. So that all adds up. So on yeah. to you. I, just, I think the investment point of view, it's an interesting one because I guess, yes, to your point, and I did mention this about the fact, you know, we're a listed company, you've got fiduciary duty to maximise revenue for our shareholders, but I think the expectation of shareholders is also shifting. It might not be directly, you know, we want you to hit your embodied carbon targets, but it is, we want you to meet your science-based targets. Our science-based targets are predicated on our embodied carbon targets. So there is kind of a, now an increasing pressure from shareholders that is starting to level out the pure revenue side of things because revenue is now starting to take value into account, value of assets and, and, and value of the business model, which is one where pure demolition and rebuild doesn't necessarily stack up and doesn't always work. Because if we were to, continue, you know, if we were to develop all of our pipeline with pure demolition jobs, we wouldn't reach our science-based targets. So I think there is a link there where investors are increasingly starting to see or is it starting to shift the pressure on us. And ESG really, and I'm, honestly, I think, in the last three years, the number of investor calls that I'm on where they are querying us with a level of detail and technical understanding of carbon that we just wouldn't have imagined five years ago. I, think, I, gen I do think the lens again is, is shifting and it is positive because I think that it, be it makes the point that I made weaker, which is that whole fiduciary duty of, of you know, maximizing revenue is becoming more nuanced because maximizing revenue is doing so by adding value mm. and ESG adds value, you know, the retention piece and you know, low-carbon developments adds value to the proposition. Mm. So, yeah. Well, that's absolutely it's what Lisette was saying as well. You know, the pressure from investors is, is absolutely massive, mm -hmm. isn't it? Um, Aaron, I'm interested in your perspective on this question as well around um, retrofit and refurb only, the, the retrofit refurb only option. Um, you know, is it realistic? Is it desirable? Um, from a GLA, GLA perspective, what are your thoughts on that? 
Um, so the policy we have has never banned demolition as it stands. Um, and so it is about, at, this, at least at this stage, it's definitely about um, going through the correct scenario analysis of what are the options. Um, so typically we will often see, um, say, what the, the, what the developer's preferred option would be, maybe a brand new, very fancy building. And that scenario will have a lot of data behind it, will be... You know, there'll be lots of information around why that's the best option, and then maybe some of the other scenarios with more retention will have a lot less information, and so we'll have to ask for basically more information on those options just so that it's a fair comparison. Um, but there will be circumstances when uh, it, it might be right to demolish, and you know that that has come up before, and it's not new. So it's about just making sure that that decision process is, is followed through um, correctly and 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 diligently, and and that the decision that is made is, is ultimately the right one at the end of the day. And it could be that maybe that development won't go ahead for whatever reason. And I think it's just about making sure that that process is, is followed in the correct way so that everyone knows that, it's, that the, the decision is, is the right one. So um, as, I, as I mentioned at the beginning, we want to see more development in the city, but it obviously has to be the correct development. And it, we don't want it at a cost of, of, of at a huge carbon cost. So um, just making sure that that process is carried out possibly. And at the moment, um, that just involves that making sure our policy is, is followed correctly. Um, so I think, yeah, we, we have had to respond when people think it is very much anti-demolition, but at this stage it's not. Mm. Um, it's just making sure that, um, as I said, the, the correct assessments are carried out for all the different scenarios possible. Well, Slido has gone absolutely crazy, which is brilliant. So we'll, we'll come to that in a minute, and I will get some of those questions in, and we're going to open up questions to the audience. But we've got a couple of points to sort of really cover here as well, just before we do that. Um, so can I just check then um, with Simon and Steve, did you have anything that you wanted to add? And please do, if you, if you feel that you want to, to add on that retrofit refurb only point, anything that you feel very strongly about on that particular subject? Um. Shall I brief? I, I, I won't take up too much of more of the time on it. I, I, I think there is, the point's been well made why retrofit will increasingly move up the order in terms of attractiveness because of reduced risk and improved values in certain circumstances. Uh, um, I don't think it can ever be retrofit only. Um, I think there's a, there's a tendency to look at buildings and their sustainability in isolation. And I think... Um, the concern with that is if you if ultimately you may be making a, a, a less environmentally or friendly or sustainable choice by opting to choose something suboptimal and therefore having to deliver something else that's required on less suitable or, or you know, for example, if you, if you opt to um, push for retrofit only on an office building that could deliver housing, but then we're releasing Greenbelt land for housing <coughs> elsewhere, that surely can't be right. So there are going to be reasons why there have to be flexibility to it, but I mm. do think retrofit first is moving up the agenda for, for good economic and policy reasons. Thank you. Steve, any thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I happen to think that in general we have enough buildings in this country, but, um, but I don't think it's realistic for... Um, for us to ban new build, um, I think, as, as we're showing with our Wandsworth scheme, for example, there are locations where, um, across a whole life of a, of a development, it, it, you can make very good arguments for, for new build if it works on the back of existing infrastructure in sustainable locations. Um, but it has to be science and data-based. Um, we have to get into the numbers and use the right numbers and the right um, arguments in order to make the decision. Thank you very much. Um, we, we've, we've actually sort of touched on this throughout the, the, the subject and the topics so far around the changing nature of development. But we, we were going to talk about this, in inverted commas, the new breed of developer. Um, and so just very quickly, going down the panel, and let's start from the other end this time, let's start with Steve. When we're talking about that new breed of develop, developer, 
what does that mean to you? What does that look like? I mean, you're in a very good position to, <laughs> to talk about that. Um, how, you know, what do you think you guys look like? And, how, you know, and, and it's just, what does it look like? And are the changes happening fast enough, I suppose? I, I, I question whether there is a new breed of developer or, or not, and whether, whether the developer um, of the moment has, 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 has been there for a while. I think there's a, a lot of more traditional developers that are being forced and pushed to be, um, to, to think more creatively and, and more differently. I, I, I cut my teeth um, in development at Urban Splash. You know, we, we, we were redeveloping mill buildings and my first ever development was 349 terrace houses in Langworthy uh, in Salford. And that was about, I mean, at the time we weren't making decisions on the basis of carbon. I mean, let's not pretend that we were, <laughs> we were sort of right at the vanguard, but, um, but we were making decisions on the basis that these buildings deserved to stick around mm. um, and that there was, there was worth and, uh, and history and, uh, and life and soul in these buildings that, that were important. Um, and it just so happened there was a load of carbon in there um, as well. So um, I think there's a, the, the, there are people thinking differently. Um, I think all development companies are valid um, and, uh, um, and, and Very people well said. Being, Very well <laughs> being pulled towards um, uh, working in a more creative way. Excellent. Well, the whole panel will be able to see the, the very scary four red uh, zeros, which means yeah. that our time is up. It's been up for quite some time. But anyway, <laughs> we're going to carry on. Just, just sorry, we're just going to carry on. Just going down um, the panel, just on that question around the new breed of developer. But if everybody can make their answers pretty quick, that'd be great. And then we'll hand over to questions from the audience as well. Thank you very much, Simon. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm glad Steve went first on that as, <laughs> as, a, as a subject of the question. Um, my thoughts are that, yeah, it's great to have new ideas and, and new innovations, and I think that is coming through. But yes, most development is going to be delivered by people who have already been doing development, but I don't think that should worry us. Development is about change, and developers are perhaps more predisposed and wired for change than, than other industries. And I think, would we like it all happening faster? Absolutely. But is it happening? Yes, I believe it is, and um, that's positive. Thank you very much. Aaron? Um, yeah, ultimately, it's We'd like to see developers follow our policies as, as closely as possible and, and exceed them. Um, but I do have, often have conversations with developers who are in that position, who are really pushing the boundaries, and they have some questions around some of the nuances about how we set our policy, and they find some of it challenging. But we do have to communicate back to them that we kind of we set that in a way that we're trying to bring the kind of the, those the people on the other side of the spectrum, so who are trying to do the least amount of effort possible, really trying to pull them along, and that's kind of what we have to think about, and that's what we target. And that does mean that there might be some some nuance that, are limit, that limits more of the people who are ambitious, but that's, um, that's fine. They're always going to do well, and so we don't really think about them as such. And it's more about, as, as Steve mentioned, bringing everyone along and, and um, trying to raise the, the kind of the floor of, of um, what's being achieved. Thank you very much. Alexia. That's actually quite a good segue, because I was going to say, I don't think the new breed of developers are the ones who are a leader. I think the new breed of developers are the ones who are going to be left behind from not doing it. And I think it's, you know, it's about people are adopting it because it's a, it's a question of risk now. You, you, you know, you've got so much more cost risk, planning risk, and program risk when you don't consider carbon properly. So I think you know, as a developer, you have to consider it in a way. I think it's the ones that don't that are going to be the new breed who are going to fall behind. Thank you very much. That's excellent. And I like that there was a natural segue as well. Like we almost planned it. Um, and Nectarius. Yeah, I echo uh, what the panel has said. And uh, I think uh, also the, the development of new technologies and especially the, the prop tech uh, front is also very, uh, very helpful to, to assist and I would say uh, rather the, the laggards and uh, those who are not uh, that advanced with uh, not in-house in teams to, uh, to follow suit and uh, uh, help transform the, the industry because 
always, yeah, we all know that this is a, the most traditional, if not the most, one of the very most traditional industries who hasn't seen a lot of change recently and needs to be transformed. Thank you very much. We've had some lovely fresh new time put on our clock, which means that it's time for questions from the audience. God, there's already a hand up. That's brilliant. Uh, so questions from the audience. Yes. Hi, everyone. My name is Brian Oknyansky. I'm an architect, uh, and I'm the head of sustainability for Studio Morin. Um, and thank you, by the way. This is a great conversation to have first thing in the morning. Um, now, uh, the question I have is that you can't reduce carbon so much that you don't have a building structure, right? And uh, all human experience is carbon-based. Our favorite food, our favorite transportation, our favorite film, whatever it is. So if we just go by the numbers, we risk designing out pleasurable experiences in the built environment, okay? Um, so then the question is, what's the best way to regulate embodied carbon? Because operational carbon, it's a technical challenge. We'll get there. Um, to what extent should embodied carbon reductions be driven by science-based targets focused on what currently exists versus requiring new developments to prove circularity credentials do better moving forward? Wow. What? I mean, I'm just sort of working out what to take from that to put to... That was brilliant. I mean, you should be on the panel. I mean, that was amazing. Um, does, does any, I was writing it down, but does anybody want to take any part of that, which was, you know, all really valid, but there was a lot in there. So I don't know if anybody wants to, to pick a part and go for it. I could make a start. Make a start. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like he mentioned the uh, science-based targets. And, uh, it has to also do with uh, the type of organization you are, because uh, you mentioned about the, your science-based targets. Also, we had for our fund mm. science-based targets, which uh, science-based targets didn't have a framework for, uh, because we're essentially a small uh, redevelopment uh, mm. fund. So you couldn't follow the, the, uh, the guidance from uh, science-based targets on all that. So that's a very val valid point. And uh, what do you say also about uh, the design and uh, substructure, superstructure? Uh, we need to think where the, most of the, the embodied carbon comes, which comes from, uh, from materials and they also comes from uh, uh, yeah, the foundations and the structure of, of the building. And it's uh, uh, steel and uh, concrete and cement. So it's about how you decarbonize uh, those hard to abate, uh, to abate uh, uh, industries, uh, first of all. And then you go into the design, which is the second, well, where you, the designer, the developer has uh, uh, influenced. So that is the most uh, important. Uh, aspect of the development of uh, of the project where you can uh, create the efficiencies and see the materials and also uh, get uh, circularity uh, involved. You mentioned something as well, sorry, you talked about managing, is a risk of managing out the, what was it that you said? We risk designing out pleasurable human experiences in right. the built environment. Okay. It's not just a numbers situation. And that's interesting, does someone want to come back on that? Because that, that stuck out, I don't know whether anyone wants to take that. Yeah, I think, I mean, from my point of view, there's something, I'm getting incredibly nervous, and I kind of started using this term because I, I do think it's quite relevant, which is a carbon tunnel vision, and I always put my hand up and say that I'm the worst at this because, because I'm the first one to bring up carbon in any kind of conversation, but I do think that sometimes there is a risk that we become so focused on it that we make some suboptimal decisions for other elements. I mean, the, my classic one is by reducing everything in a building and focusing on every single kilogram of carbon, you can end up with highly inflexible structures and that is just not a long-term solution. And I think we need to now shift the focus away from, yes, absolute you know, militant carbon accounting, but then thinking in the long-term, well, how is this building gonna be able to evolve over time? And you, you, know, you can ask structural engineers really clever questions of how do you, you know, put in the thinnest slabs with 
you know, a lot of columns, but in a way that they can then be strengthened so that if in the future someone, an asset owner, wants to add floors, you don't have to go back to the bare bones because, you know, the thought of flexibility hasn't been, the thought process hasn't been um, kind of, uh, we haven't gone through the thought process. I think I agree with you. I think there is a, a risk that we face, which is to be so carbon focused. And I think we do need to take that as it lands out to remember, that, you know, buildings are what we spend, what is it, 90% of our time in. They do need to give us experience and, and pleasure. And how we marry the two, I think, is now, and I think we are shifting the conversation. I think we've gone through a really healthy carbon deep dive, and I think now, naturally, the conversation is evolving. Thank you very much. There's a question just over here on this. Oh, there's two questions over here as well. Thank you very much. Andrew Ross from Global Garden. How far are you, all of you, following the investors and the insurers who are requiring reporting according to... TCFD and TNFD and the transition plan task force that is reporting next week. Ooh. Who wants to go first on that one? I'm looking at you, Steve. I, can. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can. Yeah, we've or been, Alexia can no, I think Alexia. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so, yeah, we've been doing TCFD for, for a number of years, and we're now looking at our approach to TNFD, so Task Force Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, because finally there's this realisation that biodiversity and climate and, and carbon come hand-in-hand, hand, two sides of the same coin. We can't just look at carbon. We need to look at nature. So we're looking at it. We're, starting, we're uh, evolving our nature-based strategy that we're going to be launching early next year to start preparing ourselves for TNFD disclosures. Um, I think it's been, you know, it's, it's a really valid process to go through, going back to the, you know, the keynote speaker earlier on about how do you internalize climate uh, kind of implications into your, your, your valuations and, and your, your decisions um, in your portfolio. It's really important. And so in terms of TPT, I think, again, really, really helpful move. I think everyone set targets. Yes, absolutely, number one thing to do. But then the big thing is about, well, how do we get to those targets? So I think that you know the TPT is a really helpful framework to start setting the, the, those well that that putting that plan in place. So would encourage anyone who hasn't done so yet to look into it because it is coming. The, the, the question did come with a with a caveat there or, or saying he wanted to know from all of you. But I'm sorry, I'm going to let them off. I'm going to let them off. So that was one answer there, and I'm sure you can get the other ones at the coffee break and ask them. Yes, question there, and then one at the front. Thank you very much. Mark Prisk. Um, Chair of Salter Housing, many housing associations tell me, and indeed have reported publicly, that between 20 and 25% of their housing stock will never meet net zero targets because of their age and condition. So what happens to those homes? Uh, is it about flexing the regulations? Is it permitting redevelopment of housing estates that are desperately in need of it? What, what are the changes that are needed to enable those homes to come back into use? Yeah, does anybody want to Steve yeah, looking like maybe, yep. I can have a bit of a go at that. I, th I think um, there's the whole sort of phrase net zero um, uh, needs to be unpacked at some point, but we haven't got time for that um, uh, today. But I think there's a, when you look at existing buildings, existing housing stock, there is obviously embodied carbon, there's operational carbon, um, providing the energy to those, um, to those homes in a more um, carbon efficient way is a relatively easy, from a scientific and engineering perspective, um, thing to do. We have a, 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 a quickly decarbonizing electricity grid, um, anything um, with, uh, that reuses electricity as its um, main source of energy um, will get pretty close to um, zero carbon in terms of um, 
in terms of operational carbon. I think there's the, the, then you have to look at the, the, the embodied carbon of the existing housing stock. Um, uh, we, we make decisions on the basis of trying to understand um, what, what carbon is in existing structures. Um, our Croydon scheme, we'd have to plant 120,000 trees in order to offset the carbon um, associated uh, with demolishing that uh, building and starting from scratch. We won't end up with a, um, a, a passive house scheme um, when, we're, when, we're, uh, when we're finished there, but the carbon payback um, from doing what we're doing will take 40 or 50 years, um, by which point, if we haven't sorted this out, then we're all in a lot of trouble because the climate crisis is today. Um, if we subscribe to there being a climate crisis, it's right now. So in, in situations like that, um, yes, doing the best we can with existing housing stock um, and uh, making sure we provide the, um, the, the energy to the housing in the most carbon efficient way has to be the way forward. Um, it has to be. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like Simon, you look like you might be. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I, I think that that's a very good example, but there are others across the industry of, of um, um, sectors or areas within sectors where um, there isn't a, an easy or economic solution. And I think it is very difficult to see how we don't either make exceptions or subsidise. And subsidise is going to be very difficult where we are at the moment. And so it's, it's quite difficult to see where, where else we go, um, in my opinion, um, in situations like that. Thank you very much. There's a question at the front as well. Thank you. Hi, uh, Elliot Sharp, uh, Vital Energy. Um, to pick up on Steve's project, only because I know it, um, and to get a little bit nerdy, forgive me, <coughs> the site is actually located next to um, some UKPN electrical transformers, which we are looking to reclaim heat from to feed a heat pump, to feed heat to the development. So my question is, is that now part of your decision-making process when you look at a land to develop? Where am I going to get my energy from? And was that ever on your decision-making list prior to where we find ourselves today? Well, that, I mean, Lexia, you're nodding. Do you mind if I come to you first on that? So. Yeah, no, that's fine. I think, I mean, we, we, so we primarily develop in London. Um, we do have some, of, some kind of, well, we are widening our development uh, to, to UK-wide, but they do tend to be in urban centres so that, you know, it's not like we'd have to talk about introducing completely new infrastructure to, to connect to the grid. I think one of the key problems that we're having, though, is, is of course, with regards to the amount of power required. And what we do find with, you know, hilariously, heat is actually really, a really political thing to capture, it turns out. You know, trying to capture heat from um, TFL vents or from, you know, just waste heat generally becomes really political. And I think that's a massive downside because it becomes the, the easiest option is always to say, well, that's just not possible. And I think that's an issue because it is waste heat. So I think there's a big piece here where we need to collaboratively work together to reduce those barriers because there's so much of it going which is going untapped and you know it doesn't strictly answer your question but I think it's something that we not enough um, attention is paid to I don't think. Out of the nearly 20 questions we've got on Slido which is amazing there are a couple here directed to you Aaron so do you mind if I yeah, sure. if I put those to you so first on our policies and targets the most effective way to reduce carbon when they can be easily delayed or weakened as we've seen recently. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think, at least in London, we have set... Well, the agenda has always been consistent, and I, I think that's what we've communicated when, when we have questions like this. Um, I think everyone knows that the rowing back at national level was yeah, pretty sad to see, and I think when you see the, 
reaction from business and from industry, not just in this sector, across lots of other sectors, you understand that consistency, I think, is what's really needed and what really helps. And that's what we've had for a long time in London. So we've seen really good responses, as I've said, in, this, in, the, in London and, and to our policies. So I think, I think it's the consistency and the, the, the track that you communicate. We have a 2030 net zero target. Um, and we've always, um, as I said, set, um, set our targets much higher than, or set our ambition much higher than national level. So I think as long as that can be maintained, then it is effective. But unfortunately, politics will get in the way. So it's, I don't, uh, yeah, I don't know anything other than that, unfortunately. But um, it was working before, so I think it can continue to work. We just need that, we just need that consistency. But as we've seen at national level, lots of things can affect it. So it, it is tricky. Um, but I, I still think it's probably the best way forward. Um, I mean, we've got questions here which are ranging from, you know, talking about the planning system, looking, uh, looking at, you know, 11 new tower applications submitted in the City of London. How do these conversations tie into that? Um, shorter, shorter tenures, lease cycles, um, what this means for, you know, end users. I mean, so, it, I mean, my point is that we, can, we can't get to any of these questions because we've run out of time. But isn't it amazing that we have such an engaged audience with such fantastic questions? And it really is amazing to see so much stuff coming through. So thank you very much to everybody. Um, I think we probably have time for one one final short question from the audience if there is one and then oh there's more than one that's awkward isn't it um the person nearest the microphone i'm really sorry uh, very quick then um what um, considerations are you making in relation to your impact on transport on um producing buildings because that's where the focus has been it's been buildings rather than the wider impact who wants to take that one it's a good question well i think um Sustainably locating developments has got to has, has got to be the starting point. You know, if you're going to if you're going to increase the number of people in an area, you want to make sure that they can get around. Um, I think there's in London, we're very blessed that we have a, a generally very good transport network, um, and that's where where most of our developments are um, are based. But um, TfL clearly struggling to um, to get a new um, a permanent. Um, uh, agreement with the central government as to how um, they will have uh, transport in London funded um, over the near term. Um, will developers be looked looked at to plug the hole? Um, part of the hole, probably. We generally get mugged about five minutes before the planning planning committee for buses or something. Um, but uh, yeah, I think it's an incredibly important part of the whole carbon conversation, including transport for your tomatoes as well. Where do you get your tomatoes from? Spain. Carbon impact of that. Um, so lots of things about how we transport stuff and people around. Thank you very much. I wasn't expecting it to go into tomatoes, but well, uh, that's yeah. great. But you know, it's, and tomatoes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so we are out of time. Um, we've got, I'm just going to go back down the panel one last time. And having said that, you know, it's not really very fair to ask a yes or no um, answer question in such a complex panel discussion. I'm going to do it again. Um, but uh, there, is a, there, is a, there is an option for maybe. So um, if I could just go down the panel and finally ask you all just to answer on the topic of the discussion, has carbon killed development? For you, if you had to go for one, would it be a yes, a no, or a maybe? I think everyone's going to say maybe, and this is going to be a really damp squib. But anyway, um, so let's start with you, Nectarius. I would say no. It's Ooh. an opportunity to, to reform. Right. Yeah. Brilliant. And, uh, yeah. Not a maybe. I'm <laughs> delighted. Thank you very much. I'm going no as well. I think it's just making for better development. 
Yeah, it was okay. a going no. I think it's just about rethinking how we do development. Thank you. Simon? Yeah, I think it hasn't killed development, but without a clearer guidance on how to do development and how to get planning, there'll be a lot of paralysis, if not death. <laughs> Good. Um, and no, um, we're just having to think harder about how to do better development um, with a longer term horizon. Get rid of those barriers to thought. I like that. Yeah. Very good. All right. Well, thank you so much to everybody for listening to this fantastic panel and for all your wonderful questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to them all. Are you guys all going to be around at the coffee break now? Okay, brilliant. So questions can be asked, but can I ask you? Yes, that's right. Can I ask you? <laughs> Join me in thanking the panel. <laughs> thank you, speakers, for sharing your time and thoughts with EG. Thank you for listening. For other podcasts recorded live at our ESG Summit or for any other news analysis or data, head to egi.co.uk slash news. Mm -hmm.